So good to see you and be with you today, and what a good time of worship. Wasn't that great? Unbelievable. I'm curious, how many of you have um, spent any time like uh, tracing back your family tree on Ancestry.com or FamilyTree.com? How many of you have uh, researched your past? And, okay, a um, good many of you. I, I think it's pretty fun. I, I mean, there's something about tracing your uh, family line back for generations and generations and, and learning about relatives who, who lived in times and places that are so different from our own. Um, uh, here's a picture of my maternal uh, great-grandparents, and uh, that's around, the, around 1900, somewhere in there, 1905. Uh, in the middle is uh, my great-great-grandfather, uh, Jack Cox, and his wife, um, uh, uh, Jemima uh, Llewellyn was her uh, maiden name, and that's my grandmother with her head on the shoulder of her brother, and uh, they're in front of like this old, uh, it looks almost like dilapidated house, uh, even though they're kind of dressed up. It, it, but, you know, I, they, were, they were farmers and, and they, were, they were dirt poor. And uh, lo- looking at this, per- this picture, it's, it's mysterious and it's weird to me at the same time. It makes me wish I could just go back in time and spend like a day there or maybe a week with them just knocking around and seeing what their life was like way back when. Another thing that was a surprise to me, it really shouldn't have been, but I've never thought about it before, but, but when I started digging into my background, I learned that the Boyd family line is actually filled with all kinds of other names like Taylors and Coxes and, and Pratts and Childresses and uh, Gordons and Spragers and, a, and I'm not making this up, a Lafoon. So I think one of my great, great, great grandmothers came from France. But um, anyway, it makes total sense now that there would be a whole lot of names in my family tree, but I just never thought much about it. Now, one of my uh, relatives, I found out, um, George Sewell, our soul, was 18 years old when he sailed to this country on the Mayflower. He married Mary Bucket around 1626. They had nine children. He died in Duxbury, Massachusetts around 1677. Here's a picture of the replica house that he lived in, and this is still up there somewhere. Okay, the house came and went. Um, uh, so this is what happens when you time travel. It comes in and out and that kind of thing. But anyway, um, it just amazes me that, I mean, like, like a, a guy who was 18 was a servant of somebody else. He has actually have, they, they would know where he lived and what his house looked like. But, um, but and, and then I think, I mean, like, what if he had died in the cold of winter way back then or, you know, got, got an arrow in the chest or, or some other way with the harsh, dangerous environment of the new world? I mean, if that would have happened, I wouldn't be here today. I mean, it's just crazy stuff. And so uh, for me, I, I like digging into the roots of my family history. And I find it that, that it can be eye-opening and it gives you a broader and deeper appreciation for, for who you really are. Now, as you can see from the bumper video, we're beginning a new multi-year sermon series called Royalty. It's a study in the books of Samuel and Kings. And we're going to be focusing on the first three kings of Israel, Saul, David, and Solomon. And so uh, these ancient uh, Hebrew scriptures are, are about people that uh, we will never meet in places we've never been to and probably never been or, uh, before. And uh, so the question is, like, why study uh, stories like this? Why study these Old Testament stories? Well, 
First of all, these ancient books are about uh, ancient people, but they're not just any people. Uh, in 1 Samuel, the scope of history is narrowed down to focus on some very specific uh, people within the nation of Israel. Now, the Israelites were God's chosen people, blessed by God to be a blessing to all the nations. And the ultimate blessing, of course, being that God would send his chosen king, a savior, a Messiah, not just for Israel, but for people everywhere. And today, in many, in, in many ways, the promises that God made to Abraham are realized in the church today. And so in a very real sense, the history we read about in 1 Samuel is our history. The people in the story are <clears throat> our people. Now, Hannah <clears throat> may have lived 3,000 years ago, but she served the same God. She prayed to the same God that we, we do. Samuel may have worshiped at a tabernacle instead of a, a local church, but he longed for the redemption and the coming of a Messiah just like we do. And this is a part of, uh, of uh, the history of God with his people. It's the history that we live in. We're continuing this history. The geography, the year, the culture have changed, but our God, who sovereignly, sovereignly governs uh, all people, nations, and places, and events, our God hasn't changed. And so, and so as we read of his intervention, like his answers to prayer, his using the everyday life of ordinary people, He's building his kingdom, and, and we, we grow to know him more and more. We learn of his, uh, his character and his loving kindness, his provision, his discipline, his protection, and, 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 and all of these things never change, and they never, never fail. Now, so our study of uh, these foreign, faraway people in places uh, that we'll never go to, this is a study of our God and his care for his people never changes. So the first reason we uh, study ancient books and ancient history in the Old Testament is because it's our family history. The God they worshiped is the God that we worship and we see how God deals with us in the same way that he dealt with them. Now the second reason we study Old Testament stories is because the problems that plague our world today are the same problems that plagued the world in that day, in their day, in Samuel's day. So what's going on in the life of the people of God as we begin in 1 Samuel? Let me just give you a quick uh, bit of background. In terms of redemptive history, the Israelites have taken parts of the promised land, but they have failed to obey God's commandments completely. They've been led by Moses out of slavery in Egypt through the wilderness and they have been given God's law. They've conquered parts of the promised land under Joshua's brave leadership and they have been given judges who for the most part were military leaders. God gave them judges to drive out the enemies who were leading them astray but this didn't deal with the problems of their heart leading them astray. Their hearts were far from God and as a result there was anarchy and moral corruption and idolatry, it ruled the day. And the Israelites were sure that if they just had a king, that would solve all of their problems. And so the story of Samuel's birth and rise to leadership is the story of the rise of the kingmaker. Sounds like a Star Wars movie, but the rise of the kingmaker. Now, God uses Samuel 
was kind of a transitional leader. He was the last of the judges, but the first of the prophets. Samuel takes Israel from a, a loose confederation of tribes to a monarchy. Israel goes from nothingness <clears throat> to being an influential empire on the world scene. And Samuel becomes the prophet who anoints uh, the king and calls the nation to live in covenant with Yahweh. So by the end of chapter 9, Israel will have its first king. But for a king to be acceptable to God, he has to be obedient to the word of God. And as we'll see, even the best king, victorious in battle, leader of God's people, chosen by God, even the best of the kings are only a shadow, a broken uh, but forward-pointing picture of the true king who is coming. Now, here's the connection to our day. We live in a time when personal freedom is our culture's highest value. We live in a time when personal freedom is our culture's highest value. You can't tell me what to do. What gives you the right to tell me how to live? Uh, you don't, if you don't agree with me, you hate me, meaning I can decide whatever I want to do, and I can live however I want to live, but if you disagree with me, well, you just can't do that. Now, you could say it this way. When the history of our time is written, I think it'll be summed up as a day in which everybody did as they saw fit. Now, the interesting about that is uh, because that's the news headline of our world today. And in fact, they are the closing words to the book of Judges. <clears throat> in the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh, unlike our English Bibles, the in the order of the books of the Hebrew scriptures, 1 Samuel comes after Judges. Ruth is placed in another place in the writings. So in the Hebrew scriptures, the last thing that you read before the opening of the book of Samuel is this. In those days, Israel had no king and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. In other words, everybody did as they saw fit. Everyone defined right and wrong and good and evil for themselves. No one paid any attention to God's word. And in many ways, the story told in First and Second Samuel is the solution to this problem. Uh, the books of First and Second Samuel were, were originally one book. One book is called the book of Samuel. The Greek translators of the Hebrew Bible, Bible titled First and Second Samuel, um, the book of kingdoms or first kingdom, second kingdom. The book of Samuel starts with no king. It ends with a king. And as I said, the days when Israel had no king were, day, were dark, dark days of moral anarchy. And the final chapter of the book of Judges, um, if you remember, because we, we were in Judges last year at this time. And I don't know if you remember la, uh, Jim's last message that covered several of the chapters there. But, but, but because they refused to acknowledge God, the, those dark days were brutal, they were ugly, they were violent, and uh, they picture what life is like when everybody does what's right in their own eyes and there's no king to rule them. Um, so, but there's something deeper, there's something even deeper going on here, and it, because it's true that Israel had no king, but that was because they refused to acknowledge God as their king. Yahweh was Israel's king. The real problem was not the lack of a king. The real problem was disobedience to their king, a lack of obedience to, the, to God as king. And this becomes 
painfully clear over in chapter 8 when the people ask Samuel, Samuel to give them a king so they can be like all the other nations, God says it straight out. He says, the people have rejected me as their king. And so when we look at the first king, Saul, I mean, and we look at his life, we're going to wonder if having a king was uh, really any better than not having a king. And even the rise of King David in the second half of 1 Samuel and his rule in 2 Samuel, um, David was a man after God's own heart, but he was also a mixed blessing. And so 1 Samuel leaves us looking beyond the history of ancient Israel to King Jesus. Because God himself promised David that one of his sons would reign over God's people forever. And so the history of the first kings leaves us longing for the rule of King Jesus because he's the only one who can set right what's wrong with the world. So we're not just studying ancient history here. We're studying our family history because in Christ, if you trusted him as your savior, you've been adopted into the royal family line, and we study the Old Testament scriptures because the problems that ancient people faced are the same kinds of heart problems that we face today. Now, this morning, or today, I am going to walk through chapters one through three. One, that's three chapters. Obviously, I'm not gonna be able to read it all, but I'm just curious, how many of you were able to read 1 Samuel 1 to 7? Okay, some of you. All right, well, that's good. You'll be, a little, you'll be a little bit ahead. But what I'm gonna do, for the most part, the beginning of the message, I'm gonna just explain the story, and then we'll come back and unpack a part of it in, in more detail. But this is, this is our outline. These, these are the three outline points. We're gonna ask, answer three questions, and that is, uh, the first question is, what is the passage about? Second question is, what does the passage teach us about God? And the third question is, how does it point us to Jesus? Three very simple questions. What's the passage about? What does it teach us about God? And how does it point us to Jesus? So, first question, what's the passage about? I'm gonna start reading in chapter one, verses one and two. Uh, this is from the New Living Translation. There was a man named Elkanah who lived in Ramah in the region of Zuf, in the hill country of Ephraim. He was the son of Je Jeraham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, son of Ephraim, son of Lafoon. No. Um, Elkanah, I just wanted to see if you were with me or not. Uh, Elkanah had two wives, Hannah and Peninnah, and Peninnah had children, but Hannah did not. Now, it's about uh, 1050 B.C., and the most important thing to take away from all the strange named places like Rama and Zuf and all the strange names in Elkanah's family line, Elihu and Tohu, haven't, I don't think I've ever heard a baby named Tohu. Tohead maybe, but not Tohu. But anyway, um, the, the most important thing to take away from all those names is that Elkanah was from the tribe of Levi, which was the tribe of priest. God had ordained uh, uh, Levi's descendants as priests who served God's people at the tabernacle. And we learn here that Elkanah had two wives. Seems that Hannah was probably his first wife. He loves her with all of his heart, but since she couldn't have children, he married Peninnah, hoping for children through her. And Peninnah, well, she was a baby factory. And uh, I mean, she could get pregnant if Elkanah just looked at her. And uh, that created a lot of tension between these two women 
because the fact that Elkanah loved Hannah more made Peninnah jealous, and the fact that Hannah was childless gave Peninnah multiple opportunities to treat Hannah with scorn and ridicule, which of course filled Hannah with, with shame and humiliation and hurt and misery. Well, every year the family would travel to Shiloh to offer sacrifices, and, and that's where the Ark of the Covenant was in those days, in the tent of meeting at Shiloh before Jerusalem. Peninnah, on, uh, uh, on that trip, uh, Peninnah would bully her all the more. And of course, Hannah is crushed by Peninnah's taunting, and Elkanah notices, and he makes a statement that goes, that goes against everything that culture values. This would have been better than a dozen roses or a diamond ring. He says to Hannah, am I not more to you than 10 sons? 10 sons would have been super valuable and prestigious, prestigious especially for him back in the day. So, so for him to say that what he and Hannah have together is more valuable than that, that is a remarkable statement. But his reassurances don't comfort Hannah. And after dinner, she goes to the tabernacle to pour her heart out to God. And as she's praying, she's making a vow that if God will give her a son, then she will give him back to the Lord. She will dedicate him to the Lord as a Nazarite um, like Samson. And so her prayer though, was so passionate. And she's over there like mouth and stuff. Words aren't coming out. Eli, the priest, thought she was drunk. But she explains her situation, and Eli leaves her with some words of encouragement that cheer her up, and he blesses her with kind of a, um, a sort of kind of prophecy that uh, God will answer her prayer with a yes. Not long after that, Hannah becomes pregnant and gives birth to a baby boy, and she names him Samuel. And true to her vows, she takes him uh, back to the house of God after he's weaned, and she offers an extravagant uh, sacrifice, and she seeks Eli out, and she's like, uh, basically says, hey, you remember me? I'm the woman you thought was drunk. Ring any bells? I mean, I, I, I prayed for a child, and, and, and God gave me a child, so here he is. And so I'm dedicating him to the Lord, and I'm giving him to you to raise, to become a true man of God. And so Eli commits to raising Samuel in the house of God. And then Hannah goes on to worship God with the song, now, we're going to skip this song for now, but we're going to come back and unpack it at the, uh, uh, later on in the message. Let's continue the story. So Eli is raising Samuel, but he also has two of his own sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who are serving as priests, and the text says these, men, these young men were scoundrels. They were worthless men. The Hebrew is that they were sons of Belial, the sons of the devil, children of the devil. And they were spiritually and morally corrupt. And the text says they did not know the Lord. When it came to the people's sacrificial offerings, they helped themselves to more meat than the law allowed for priests. Sometimes they would take the best part of the meat by brute force. And they take for themselves first instead of giving to God first. And we later learn that they're sleeping with women at the tabernacle. Not good guys. And this isn't just casual disregard for God. This is contempt. It is out and out contempt. They actually despise God and his laws. Meanwhile, God blesses Hannah with three sons and two daughters. 
And we read in chapter 2, verse 21, and the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Now, Eli, of course, has the authority to remove his sons from the priesthood, and God has actually given him Samuel as a, an alternative option, but all he does is rebuke his sons and, and nothing changes. And since Eli won't do what's right and remove them, God sets out to remove them himself. And, and, and then we read in chapter 2, verse 26, now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also man. And then God sends a prophet to rebuke Eli and to deliver the bad news that everybody in Eli's family is going to die young and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were going to die in battle on the same day. And again, we get a progress report on Samuel. Chapter 3, verse 1, now the boy Samuel was serving the Lord in the presence of Eli. Now, one night, Samuel is sleeping in the tabernacle, and God shows up and speaks to him in an audible voice. But Samuel has no idea what's going on, because in this period of Israel's history, it wasn't like in Moses' day when the leaders um, um, were able to see God's mighty power, visible demonstrations of that, and they could hear God's uh, thundering voice. Now, these, these, these leaders are living in rebellion against God, so verbal, visual communication with God is rare. And on top of that, <clears throat> Samuel has been learning about God from Eli, but he doesn't yet know God experientially, and that's about to change. So hearing a voice calling his name is really confusing to him. He thinks Eli keeps calling him in the night. And uh, in fact, uh, he hears the call three times, and Eli finally figures out that it's the Lord, and he coaches uh, Samuel on how to respond. Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. And what God says to Samuel echoes what the prophet had to, uh, said to Eli earlier. <clears throat> and again, it's not good news for Eli and his family because they've knowingly, deliberately dishonored God <clears throat> and they're going to be cut off from God. And God will raise up a faithful priest in their place, chapter 2, verse 35. So of course... When Samuel hears this, he's afraid to tell Eli the bad news, but Eli kind of threatens him with a curse himself, and so Samuel uh, tells all, and without objection, this is really interesting to me, without objection, Eli says, it's the Lord's will, let him do what he thinks is best. No repentance, just a, a resignation, like, okay, it's God's will, let him do what he thinks is best. And chapter 3 closes with these words, 319, and Samuel grew up, the Lord was with him, and everything Samuel said proved to be reliable. And all Israel, from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south, they all knew that Samuel was confirmed as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord continued to appear at Shiloh and gave messages to Samuel there in the tabernacle. That's what the passage is about. God is working to give Israel a king, He's working to remove a corrupt priesthood and replace it with a faithful priesthood. This is the story about the rise of the kingmaker. Now, what does the passage teach us about God? Over and over again in Scripture, we see that very often God begins his work in nothingness, in, in human desperation, in helplessness, and hopelessness, and weakness. God begins working in our weakness. I wonder, do you know that? Whatever you're going through right now, whatever is making you feel helpless and hopeless and weak, 
whatever you are facing that seems like an utter impossibility, whatever is keeping you awake at night, I'm telling you, God is working in your weakness. I'm telling you that because that's what the Bible says. That's what the scripture says, and we see it right here. I could say it this way, God delights in helping those who know they cannot help themselves. So here's Hannah, no children, which meant no hope, no future, no worth in the eyes of her neighbors, full of shame and humiliation, and she is in a long line of women who face the same thing. The three wives of the patriarchs of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Sarah, the wife of Abraham, Rebecca, the wife of Isaac, Rachel, the wife of Jacob, were all infertile, and God worked to do something new through them in that. Mrs. Manoah, the woman who eventually gave birth to Samson. Ruth, who had no children in her first marriage before she met and married Boaz. In every case, God began working in the ordinary day-to-day lives of all of these women, working in their weakness, their helplessness, their hopelessness to do something new and life-changing. I like how Dale Ralph Davis puts it in his commentary on 1 Samuel. He writes, God's tendency is to make our total inability his starting point. God's tendency is to make our total inability his starting point. So God works in our weakness to do new things. The second thing that we see here is that God works in ways that we're not always able to see. He works in ways that we're not always able to see. He works slowly, silently, subtly, subversively, so much so that at first you may think he's not doing anything at all. God's people, even worse, God's priests were were spiritually and morally bankrupt. Things are bad. In these dark days, they're really, really bad. But What you need to see here is that there are certain hints that God is at work in the midst of all those terrible reports about all the bad things. There are these one-liners woven into the story telling us, don't forget what's really going on here. So what is going on? Well, again, this is a story about the rise of Samuel and the fall of the house of Eli. It's the beginning of a story of how God is going to bring an end to the dark days of the judges and how he will inaugurate the golden age of David's kingdom in Israel. He is at work, but the characters in the story can't see it. In fact, they can't see what we can see. So what is it that we see? Well, we see these one-liners telling us that God is working in the dark. Let me show you. Let's look at them. Chapter 2, verse 11. I I put him on the screen a minute ago, but uh, 2.11 says, And the boy served the Lord by assisting Eli the priest. And then we're given a description in the story of just how raunchy things were at Shiloh. And then 2.18, But Samuel, though he was only a boy, served the Lord. Verse 21, And Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. And then again, the immorality of Eli's sons is highlighted. And then we read in verse 26, meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew taller and in favor with the Lord and with people. And then in the last section of chapter two, you see this, you, we see this prophecy of terrible judgment that will fall on Eli and his sons and his whole family line. And then chapter three, verse one says, meanwhile, 
the boy Samuel served the Lord by assisting Eli. And then the chapter closes in 319. As Samuel grew up, the Lord was with him and everything he said proved to be true. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was confirmed as a prophet by the Lord. And the Lord continued to appear at Shiloh and gave messages to Samuel at the tabernacle. You see it. You see how, how, how dark and depraved things are among the priests of Shiloh. But interwoven through it all, there are these one-liners as if to say, don't forget Samuel's here. Don't forget that the Lord is growing new leadership. Don't forget there's something afoot. Don't forget that he's at work. God is at work even if you can't see him. I'm telling you, it is a beautiful and brilliant way the narrator of the story and the Holy Spirit is making this point so that we don't miss it. But these are the kind of throwaway lines that when we're reading the Bible for ourselves, we just go, okay, okay, where's the good stuff? Where's the good stuff? This is the good stuff. Matthew Henry once said, the God of Israel, the Savior, is sometimes a God who hides himself, but never a God that's absent. Sometimes in the dark, but never at a distance. And you need to anchor that truth in your heart. We all need to anchor that truth because all too often, when things seem dark and hopeless, we make a wrong assumption about God. We assume that he's absent, that he doesn't care, that he's distant, and he's not. Hear me, just because God's work isn't visibly obvious, don't think he's not there. Remember Samuel. Remember the one-liners that remind us that God is with us and working for us in the dark. And again, what we see here is that God is working to bring new godly leadership to replace old corrupt leadership and he's working silently and slowly here, maybe for a decade or more, as Samuel grows up. And he's setting the stage for what's coming. Now, I understand. I mean, we all want to see God work in some visible, tangible, spectacular way. I get that. I mean, I want to see that. But the fact is, God works, the way God works is usually done slowly, silently, subtly, subversively, He's in between the lines. But if you look hard enough, you can see, you can see the evidence. So what does the passage teach us about God? First, we see that God begins by working in our weakness. He, his starting point is our total inability. And second, we see that no matter how dark things are, God is working silently and subtly and subversively to bring his good purposes to pass. But there's one more thing and we need to see about how God works, all right? So chapter two, verses one through 10. I'm gonna read from the ESV, and uh, you can follow along or you can just listen. This is Hannah's song of celebration at the birth of her baby boy. And Hannah prayed and said, my heart exults in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth scoffs at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble gird on strength. 
Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and he makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness for not by might shall a man prevail. His adversaries are shattered. The Most High will thunder in heaven against them, and the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the honor of his anointed. I don't know about you, but this doesn't sound like something that my wife and I would say or sing if my infertile wife gave birth to a baby boy. Like, I mean, I'm like, what? Like the bow of the mighty is broken and the Lord will judge to the ends of the earth and he gives power to his king. And by the way, there was no king when she said this. Tuck that away. That's not how I would write a song to mark the arrival of a new baby. I mean, uh, it seems like a new baby celebration song would go something like, I prayed to the Lord in my distress and he heard my prayer and he granted my request. The Lord had closed my womb, but by his grace and mercy, he's given me a son. Yes, the Lord has made me strong. I was hopeless, and he's given me hope. I had no future, but he's given me a secure future. My eyes were filled with tears of sorrow, but now he has filled my eyes with tears of joy. He has taken away my grief and shame. He's put a new song in my heart and on my lips. Sing with me, O people of God. There is no one like the Lord. He is our rock and our hope. Now, that's the song I would write. But here's the deal. Hannah's story is not simply told to illustrate the story of a young, young and fertile woman who lived in, in the everyday life of God's people. The message is not that every childless woman who asks for a child will receive one. That's not the message. And by the way, I, I, I want you to know I, I, I hurt with you if you're in that place right now. And um, it's interesting, when I was researching this message, I ran across a website called hannah.org. And I uh, checked out the doctrinal statement. It is a really solid organization, and they come alongside of women who are struggling with Hannah's problems. So you might try that, hannah.org. This uh, song is more than a personal prayer of thanksgiving. It is a victory song for the nation of Israel. Hannah's personal crisis has ended, and now Israel's Christ, time of crisis, when everybody did what was right in their own eyes, it's about to end. So what is true of Hannah personally is true of Israel nationally. Hannah's name means favored, but she's childless. She's not favored, and in the same way, Israel is favored in the sense of being God's chosen people, but they're not favored because they're living in rebellion against God. Just as Hannah is barren, so is Israel. They're not bearing fruit. 
Just as Hannah faced a personal crisis, so Israel faces a national crisis. And just as God has done a beautiful thing, new work in Hannah's life, God is working silently and subtly and subversively to do a new work in Israel. He's transitioning from the dark days of the judges to anointing Israel's first king, Saul, and the subsequent reign of Israel's greatest king, David. Samuel is the last of the judges, but he will be the prophet who identifies David as God's chosen ruler over his people, and here we go. It is from David's line that another son will be born under miraculous circumstances, the son who will be the eternal faithful priest that Yahweh said would come. And he will be the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and he will judge the ends of the earth and establish God's kingdom of justice and righteousness on earth. And in that day, God's will will be done on earth just as it is in heaven. So Samuel's story directs our attention forward in this story, but do you see how it points way beyond Israel's story? Which leads to the last question. How does this passage point us to Jesus? Well, think about all the reversals that Hannah sung about, like the Lord makes poor, he makes rich, he brings low, he exalts, he lifts the needy uh, from the dust, and, uh, and he seats them with the princes. Mm, yeah, those were fulfilled in part in the kingdoms of David and Solid, Solomon. But uh, the reversals will not be realized in full until God's kingdom comes and his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. King Jesus is the final fulfillment of all that Hannah sung about. He is the one Uh, in whom all of those turn the world upside down reversals will be found. So Hannah's song extends beyond the birth of her baby to the birth of a nation, to the birth of our Savior, the true King who is coming. You see, how do you know that? Well, several ways. When Mary was about to give birth to Jesus, she also sang a song, the Magnificat. And her song is a clear echo of what Hannah sung about, which also pointed beyond what her son Jesus would accomplish in his day. And I wish I had all the time, I had more time to unpack it all with you. There's so many parallels between Mary's song and Hannah's song, but here's, here, I'm going to do it this way, highlighting just a few of them. Um, I'm going to read Mary's Magnificat, and then I'm going to intersperse with Hannah's song. Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Hannah said, my heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. Mary sang, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And Hannah sang in 1 Samuel 2, 2, there is none holy like the Lord. 
Mary said, and uh, saying, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He's shown strength with his arm. He's scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. And Hannah saying in chapter two, verse seven, he brings low and he exalts. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the weak gird on strength. Mary saying, he filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. And Hannah saying in chapter two, verse five, those who were full beg for bread, but those who were hungry are full. And Mary said, he's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and all his offspring. Now granted, the parallels are not word for word. But there is no doubt that Mary has made Hannah's song her own. The theme of both songs is the reversal of human fortunes when God intervenes and turns the world upside down. And the coming of both Samuel and Jesus bring about a reversal of fortunes of which both their mothers sing. The proud are humbled and the humble are exalted. So these two songs point out a link between Samuel and Jesus and Hannah and Mary and even Luke seems to see a connection between Samuel and Jesus. Listen to this, 1 Samuel 2.26 we read, and the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and with men and Luke 2.52 says, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Clearly, the scriptures want us to see how Samuel points us to Jesus. Samuel, the last judge, the first prophet, the new priest. Jesus, the judge, the prophet, the great high priest. Hannah's song and Samuel himself point forward to Jesus. Now, do you see why it's so important to study these ancient stories about people we'll never meet in places we've never been? If you've trusted Jesus as your savior, then you have been adopted into the royal line of King Jesus. And that means that these stories are your family history. They trace your lineage way back before anything that Ancestry.com can uncover for you. They shape your identity as a child of the king. They give you a future and a hope no matter how dark your days are personally or how dark the days that we live in today are nationally. You can know for sure, for certain, that because Jesus died to save you from your sins and because God raised him from the dead to give you new life, you can know for sure that as a child of the king, that he will guard the feet of his faithful ones, as Hannah sung. You can know for sure that as a child of the king, the Lord will break to pieces all of his and your enemies and and he will thunder from heaven against them. You can know that as a child of the king, he will lift you up and make you sit with princes and inherit with Jesus a seat of honor in the heavenly places. And isn't this the great reversal that Jesus taught about in the Sermon on the Mount in Luke chapter six when he said, blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of heaven, but woe to you who trust in your riches for you have received your only happiness now. Blessed are you who are hungry, for you will be satisfied. But woe to you who are full now. 
you shall be hungry. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. But woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. And woe to you when all people speak well of you. But blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and when they ridicule you and they spurn your name as evil on account of me. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For behold, God is working slowly, silently, subversively to usher in a king and a kingdom that will turn the world upside down. And you will most definitely, if you've trusted Jesus as your savior, you will be there to see it. You will be there standing around the throne when Jesus, when Jesus died and rose from the dead, he ascended back to his throne in heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. King Jesus reigning over everything from galaxies to governments. But there will be a day when he will be seated on his throne as King Jesus and he will rule over this whole world and he will judge from one end to the other and you will be there. That's our hope. So sing, (laughs) sing with Hannah. My heart rejoices in the Lord for there's no one holy like the Lord. There's no rock like our God. And sing with Mary, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior.